Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now here are your hosts, Nick and Jake. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Nick. Welcome back to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. As usual, I'm joined for this episode by my co-host, Jake Gunderson. And I'm delighted to say that we're also joined by one of our favourite guests from last season, who's kindly agreed to become one of our regular panellists, Greg Hill. Just in case you missed last episode, we now have a brand new format. Two speakers, two topics, 20 minutes each. And with that, let's dive straight in. Now, Greg, it's customary that we let our guest panellists speak first. So your 20 minutes start now. What would you like to talk about? Uh, thanks, Mick and Jake, for having me on. I wanted to talk about protocols and protocol-oriented programming. And I know we've had protocols and things like that and interfaces back in the Objective-C days, and maybe you come from Java and C++ or Ruby or who knows. And these kinds of things are in many different languages. But I wanted to bring it up again in Swift because with the latest release of Swift 2, there's been some improvements and enhancements to make protocols more of a first-class citizen, so to speak. And there was also at one of the WWDC sessions, one of the uh, Swift or LLVM compiler engineers called declared Swift to be a protocol-oriented programming language. So I think it's an important topic to talk about now that we're all a year into Swift and we're on Swift 2 now. So could you give us an idea, like just for any uh, beginners listening, just go over what a protocol is and how it differs from, say, a class or a struct or that kind of thing. Yeah. Protocols are interesting in that they are declared very much like a class or a struct. If you looked at the definition for a, a very simple struct and you looked at the definition for a protocol, you would think, wow, they're very similar. Just replace the word struct or class with protocol. But they're basically just an interface. They're saying, uh, for struct, for example, you would say, I want to have these three properties and I want to also have these two methods. And then you would give the type of the properties and you would define an implementation for the method. But for a protocol, for a sort of a base protocol, you would just say what you want to be there. You would say there should be these two properties and there should be this one method, but you don't actually give the implementation of the method and you leave that up to whoever is going to uh, actually implement the protocol. So it's just sort of a definition of an interface and then it's up to a, a struct or a class or an enumeration later on to actually uh, implement, to have that property as defined and to have the method that matches the signature of the protocol. So you're just sort of defining an interface, which is sort of how it works in other programming languages. So, I mean, from a naive point of view, I guess, like the first question would be like, why would I want to go to the hassle of implementing a protocol that that's declares what methods and properties I should then implement mm -hmm. on my class. Why would I just not do that on my class or struct in the first instance? I think we saw a lot of this in, again, in the Objective-C days with um, delegates, data sources. I mean, table views are very common, for example, in iOS, and you have a defined interface for what your data source should look like, what your delegate should look like. So that's sort of one way to say, here's the interface that I'm expecting you to implement, and you go ahead and do it. So that's sort of the classic use of protocols. But I think the improvement that we've had in Swift 2 is that structs and enumerations can also implement protocols, whereas everything in the old days, the old object-oriented only days were like classes, you have inheritance, and if you want to build up a whole set of um, 
like a whole class hierarchy, for example. The classic example, of course, is always like animals, right? You have an animal class, and then you have a mammal subclass, and then you have a canine subclass, and then you have a dog at the end of it, or whatever. And that's how you would build up your interface. But the protocol, thinking about it in protocols, you sort of shift it around 90 degrees and say, okay, what are the things that the dog has? It, it can walk, it has four legs, it barks, and things like that. And the idea is to set up a more sort of compositional approach and say, I'm going to make a protocol for animals that bark. And dog will implement that, as will, I don't know, wolf or something like that. I'm going to make a protocol for an animal that walks with four legs. And then your cat and your tiger and your deer and your moose and everything else can also implement that. So you're sort of looking at your types in small bundles of functionality that you would define with protocols. And then as you build up your types, and again, this isn't just for classes, it's for structs and enumerations as well in Swift. As you build up your types, you just, you, you, you know, you have this menu of protocols and you say, all right, now I have to model a human being. So I'm like, okay, I'll take the two-leg one, I'll take the thing about being able to speak, and I'll take the um, large advanced brain protocol, and you would build up your type like that using protocols with small pieces. So I think that's the benefit, is that you don't just have a... In Swift, of course, we only have single inheritance. If you have a language with multiple inheritance, then maybe you can do something like this. But the idea in Swift and with protocols is to build up your types in that sort of compositional way rather than a long, linear um, class hierarchy. Okay, so I do have two questions about that. The, the first one, I guess, is if I understand it correctly, what you're saying is protocols are a much better approach to getting around the old object-orientated subclassing problem where you know you would create two classes that had a similar method of you know of a parent class so then you would move that method into the parent class so both subclasses inherited it but then if you wanted to build on a third class if you had a you know a wolf a dog and you wanted to add a cat but you'd moved back into the parent class then the cat would inherit the bark even though cats don't bark whereas mm -hmm. with protocols you can you just adopt the protocols that are relevant for that animal in that analogy that's right yeah so if you did have your dog class or struct and you decided all of a sudden that, oh, I also need to model uh, what kind of food they eat or something like that, you could just add that just to dog and then that wouldn't affect anything else. Um, like if there are other, if you have a million animals with four legs, it's not like that affects those other ones because you're just changing the dog one to add additional functionality uh, with protocols. I guess as well, protocols are a way of establishing a contract between another object that may not know anything about your object, but as long as you, if you say that you're declare, if you're conforming to this protocol, and that ob that other object is only interested in calling methods that are defined on that protocol, then it doesn't care about the rest of your object, as because you're declaring that you know you've got this contract between the two objects, where you're saying all you need to know is that I do inherit these methods. So when you call these methods, they will be there, and we're not going to run into some sort of runtime exceptions kind of that type safing stuff as well and objects not knowing not needing to know too much about each other but are still able to communicate by way of these protocols yeah that's right i think that's a key thing especially because swift is so much more uh type say i think you, you call it type safe it, it's just more strict about types and so i think that having the flexibility of protocols is important there for example if you had a if you had some kind of a free function or a method called like gallop or something like that and you would say, well, horses can gallop, but maybe dogs can gallop too. I don't know. I don't know what the technical <laughs> definition of the word is, but you get the idea. And you could say, well, 
I have this Gallup method. I'm let's say it takes a parameter. It's a function, not a method, and it takes a parameter. And it's like, well, I don't want to take dog or horse specifically, but instead, if I just take anything that conforms to the four legs protocol, then anything that has four legs, let's say by definition, can then gallop, and then I'll do it like that. And then just like you said, if you pass something into that function, then that function will know, ah, this thing has four legs, which means it must have the following properties. And the following methods, and that function has no idea whether this is a dog or a moose or whatever. But in theory, maybe this doesn't work for this particular example. <laughs> but in theory, just knowing what properties and methods a four-legged being can have—that's sort of all it needs to know, and it doesn't need to know the specifics. So you do get that nice separation of concerns and building up pieces of functionality like that. And it does—it just does help to put that into a function or into a protocol. And again, it doesn't, it doesn't automatically trickle down through and sort of poison, to put it uh, not so nicely, poison your entire class hierarchy with these extra methods because you have it split up by, by protocol. So yeah, I think the whole thing about the type system is really important as well. You mentioned that Swift has been called a protocol-oriented programming language. Are there some examples of things we might take for granted that are built into the language that are implemented via protocols? Yeah, I was doing a little research for a talk and for this and for this podcast. And when I looked around, there were 89 is the magic number, 89 public protocols defined. If you look in the Swift, um, let's call them headers for lack of a better term, and which is a good number. And for example, arrays in Swift conform to eight protocols, at least strings conform to 12 protocols. So right there, you can see because string is a struct and arrays are also structs, they don't have there's no hierarchy. They don't inherit from anything. But instead, string conforms to, you know, indexable and comparable and equatable. And all the functionality that you would expect from a string or most of the functionality is actually coming from these protocols. Again, same with array, all of the collection types. So I would say just everything that you use in Swift, all of the standard libraries, standard constructs like numbers and strings and arrays and such are the functionality that they have is built up with protocols. So Apple's really, I think, or the Swift team call it Apple, I don't know, is really taking the lead, I think, in defining these protocols. And just in the standard library itself, they're really, I think, taking protocol-oriented stuff to, to heart there, which is nice to see. So you can always browse through the headers and have a look. And when Swift goes open source, I'll be really excited to uh, look into it and look at the implementation details there. Am I right that enumerable is a protocol? And could I, for example, make, and maybe it already is, but could I make a string enumerable so I could enumerate it like I would an array? Or could I make an object that's not necessarily a simple collection mm-hmm. into something enumerable, for example. Yeah, I don't think it's called enumerable, but there's a sequence type, and then there's one called a generator, I think. So if you built your own collection type, like you want to make a, a, a queue or a stack or something like that, then you would do it like that. But yeah, you would just give a, you'd have to make an object called like a generator that's like an iteration. Uh, it's like iterator in Java where you say, well, what's the first thing and what's the next thing? And you just keep, it keeps asking you next, next, next. So if you had a string, are you thinking like you would give the first character of the string and then you would say next, you give the second character. And then once you get to the end, you just say nil. And then that's the end of the sort of enumeration. Is that what you're saying? You want to loop through a string character by character? Uh, yeah, that was my thought. Or like even something weird, like if I had like an ant farm and I wanted to enumerate through ants in my ant farm yeah. or something strange where it's yeah. not it's not a simple array, but there there's some component of it where I want to be able to interact with it at times as though it, it is an array, something like yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. So if you conform to those two, then you'll get the, um, I think that's, like I said, sequence type and generator type, then you'll get the for in syntax automatically. 
And then if you even if you even conform to uh, there's a protocol called collection type that which um, sets arrays and dictionaries conform to. If you also had that, then you would get even more. You would get like map and filter, I think, and things like that automatically. So yeah, you can absolutely conform to those protocols, and then you'll get that nice built-in syntax again, like the for in loops, and then also the other handy functional style things like map, filter, reduce, and so on. So yeah, yeah, you can absolutely implement those yourself. Yeah, I was just going to say I actually did this last week. Uh, so I know first hand you can do that. Yeah. What was your ex- example? What was your use case, Mick? Well, I was I've got a grid of cells, so I've got rows and columns, but I wanted to iterate over the cells individually. So we, if you know, if you imagine a grid where the top left hand corner is zero zero, then I wanted to go zero 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 one zero two zero three. Then when you got to the end of that, you move down to the next row. Um, so I had to manage that enumeration separately because the storage underneath is a an array of arrays. Hmm. So um, that's exactly what I did. I'm just looking up the implementation now to see what it is that I needed to. Uh, so it's like you, you had a two-dimensional array, but your enumeration was treating it as like one dimensional, yeah. just putting one row after the other. That's right, yeah. Yeah, cool. And it was so what sequence type that I needed to conform to. And it's just a single method, generate, which returns a any generator, which actually is a function. And that's where it does the, the next where you say this is the next thing in the in the row. And for that, you can do, like you say, you can do four cell, eight, well, four cell in grid. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you get you get each cell in the grid, which is really cool. Something else that was cool, I'm not sure if this is a protocol, but just while we're talking about this implementation, was um, implementing subscripting as well on the grid. So where you can do like the grid and you open the square brackets and you give it a row and a column and it will return that. And that was pretty cool because I didn't know you could do that either. But I assume that's in some protocol somewhere, subscript. There is one called ind- indexable, or indexable, I don't know how you say that, but I'm not sure if that's it, but I know subscript, isn't that just almost like operator overloading? You overload this subscript function that takes your type, isn't that how you do it? You just define a function, isn't that how you do it? Well, uh, yeah, it's just called, well, I mean, it's not even got um, like the function keyword, it's just subscript, right? and then okay. you give it the um, the parameters that you want to subscript by, I suppose, and then you return a get, Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, there are protocols, um, like I said, indexable and extritable and things like that. I think those have more to do with ranges and numbers than they do subscripts. But yeah, I think that kind of idea, like you said, of subscripts, enumerations, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, there is a lot of protocol stuff in there. So when you were putting this talk together that you just mentioned, when you discovered there were 89 um, public protocols, mm-hmm. you grouped them into three categories. Can you just give us a quick overview of what those are and why, why they're relevant if you want to learn more about protocol-oriented programming? Yeah, I think the first group that, uh, well, they're they're by the pro- how the protocols have names. So if you were paying attention to Swift last year, between Swift 1 and Swift 2, some of the protocols got renamed. Seemingly, hmm, I wonder why that got renamed, but I think I see now why. So the first group is ends in the ABLE or A-B-L-E kind of syntax. Those are ones like hashable, equatable, comparable, or comparable, as some people like to say. And then the idea here is like things that the type can do. For example, you can hash the type. You can check for a quality between two types. You can compare two types and so on. So that's the first group. Uh, the second group is the sort of identity protocols. And they end in the word type. We just talked about a few like sequence type, collection type, and things like that. And I think those protocols are more for like, what is the type? Like you mentioned, you have a grid and that is a kind of a collection. So you could say, well, that's a collection type. It's a kind of a sequence maybe is more accurate. And so it conforms to sequence types. That's the second group of protocols. This is probably 
half of them, I think like 50 or so of the 89, are protocols that end in the word type. So that's definitely the majority of them that are in there. Uh, and then the final type, uh, final kind of protocols are the ones that end in the word convertible. These are things like custom string convertible and float literal convertible. And those just point out um, where you can convert either to or from. Unfortunately, the naming isn't that great. You don't know if this float literal convertible, for example, does that mean that your type can convert to a float or does that mean it can convert from a float into your type? It's not quite clear from the name, but that's the idea there. If your type can change into something else, then uh, there are these protocols with convertible. So those are the three ways of naming protocols in the standard library, which I think is a good set to, uh, when you're thinking about protocols and when you're thinking about what kind of protocols that you want to make, I think that's a pretty good a template to follow. So that's what I was talking about in my talk, uh, giving some examples of those three kinds and then some conclusions about, you know, what does that mean for our own code? Okay, cool. Now, we've I've just realized we've, we've spent almost 70 minutes talking about what a protocol is and, and how we use them. So I just want, like, for the final three minutes, just take a step back and look at the bigger picture mm -hmm. and look at how that, you know, like, how does this fit into protocol or into programming? Why is this almost like a revolution? Because I know that WWDC session that you mentioned was so um, popular that they ended up running it a second time, which as far as I'm aware, in the years that I've been watching WWDC and, and looking at the schedule and watching the videos, the first time that's happened to my knowledge. Yeah, I know they repeat that scroll view one. That was always very popular. But yeah, I think this was like an unscheduled, oh, we better run that again because uh, so many people were talking about it. But yeah. Uh, in terms of protocol-oriented programming, though, I think with Swift 2, you can have protocol extensions. So again, before with protocols, you were just defining an interface saying, here are the methods you need to implement. But with protocol extensions now, you can say, here's a method, and I'm going to implement it for you. So you can add implementations to your protocols now, which you couldn't do before. So it's getting very close to multiple inheritance at this point, because it's like, if you conform to this protocol, then that's great. Here are the things you need to do. But I have also already implemented 1, 2, 10, 20 of the methods, and you will get those sort of for free. So I think that's the revelation of Swift 2, was that uh, protocols are, again, just more, more than an interface now, but they also can add actual functionality to your classes and structs and enumerations, your types. So I think that's the big change that's come in into uh, Swift 2. I wanted to ask you about that, about the idea of multiple inheritance, Greg. I have a specific uh, use case where I have, I, I inherited a project uh, that had a certain uh, database format and I wanted to use a different, it was using XML basically as its database and that wasn't good for all kinds of reasons, querying and all kinds of things. But all of the communication with the JSON server was tied up in this XML database and so I, I, now I ended up with two database layers I kept the one that had all the JSON communication and then I added um, realm to it and so I ended up with with like two layers of data modeling and I wondered if I could use and this was all objective C code but I wondered if I could use Swift protocol calls to basically create one Swift object that implemented that used those kind of objects internally to implement both sides of that equation I don't know if even that's even a good idea but is that something that would be doable with with I know this is kind of like a specific thing but what what's your opinion on that scenario yeah that I, I think so I think that's a good use of it I had down in my notes also to talk just briefly now about uh, using protocols for mocks so there's an article about uh, how to do testing 
um, testing your classes and things like that for unit tests. And then the idea is if you define a protocol, like for example, the, I think the example was testing UI application. And it's like UI application has these two methods that I'm interested in. I'm going to create a protocol for those two methods. And then I can create a mock object that also conforms to that protocol and then sort of mock things in that way. So I think if I understand your situation, Jake, there's you already have this class with this interface. You want to sort of replicate it somewhere else. And I think using protocols to sort of create a common interface between the two, similar to what I'm thinking about mocks, that's why it just reminded me. I don't know if that exactly applies, but that just kind of comes to mind as um, since it's an interface-based thing, protocols. Okay, guys, I'm going to have to stop you there. Greg, your 20 minutes are up, so thanks for that. It's been really insightful. Now, before we move on to Jake's topic, I wanted to take this opportunity to thank Motlin for sponsoring this episode of the raywenlit.com podcast. Molten is an e-commerce API that allows you to easily add e-commerce functionality to any mobile app in just minutes. With a few lines of code, you can implement inventory, carts, the checkout process, orders, and much more. To celebrate the launch of their iOS SDK, Molten are offering three months of free access to the platform worth an amazing $147. Sign up for this offer at molten.com forward slash r forward slash raywendelic. Thanks again to Molten for sponsoring this episode of the raywendelic.com podcast. So Jake, it's over to you. Your 20 minute countdown has begun. All right, so this week on the site, we're doing the Unity Feast, which means there's going to be a ton of great uh, Unity content. And so we thought it would make sense to talk a little bit about Unity. I've talked about Unity before, but we thought it'd be nice to talk a little bit more about Unity on the podcast today. And so I would, thought maybe I would just describe kind of my experience. I've been using Unity for some client work that I've been doing. I wanted to kind of give give the perspective of the iOS developer that's familiar with Objective-C and some Swift that, you know, wants to switch to Unity, like what, what are some of the pain points that I've experienced? And then anything else that you guys, Greg and Mick might want to know about Unity. The first thing that happens when you, when you switch to using Unity from Objective-C from your regular Xcode, because Unity uses, um, if you're using it on your Mac, it uses a um, mono develop, which is a, an IDE that you can write. I, I use C-sharp uh, in Unity. You can also use Unity Script. My experience so far has been that most serious Unity developers are using C-sharp. Um, so that's my experience is using C-sharp, but you use MonoDevelop. My first kind of thing that I got stuck on was in Objective-C and in Xcode, you kind of know where you're starting, especially if I'd come from SpriteKit. And so, you know, if you're going to make a game, you've got, you know, an object that represents kind of the world, perhaps the level or the world or kind of whatever environment you're setting up. And then you might have objects that represent kind of the actors inside the world. And when you open up Unity, what you're presented with is a level editor. Um, and you can do it in, you can view it in 3D or 2D. There's a bunch of great 2D tools. But even when you're in 2D, you're still really still in the 3D world. You're just doing everything on a plane. But I wasn't sure where to start with that. I was like, well, I've got the editor. How do I, like, how do I run code at startup, for example? There's a bunch of things I need to do when my game starts. What's the right way to do that? And so that, that kind of thing was, was my biggest hurdle was I knew, I already knew how to do things in Objective-C and in SpriteKit, but I had no idea what the right way to do them in Unity was. I even went out and talked. There's some local Unity groups. And I kept asking Unity developers, like, what's the right way to do this? And one thing I learned is that asking in the cocoa world we want to know what the right best way to do things is and that's not necessarily not everyone necessarily cares about that like in the unity world with the guys i talked to they were like well you can do it lots of ways 
here's how I do it. And I was like, well, is that going to, you know, you're worried about, am I going to run into problems later on if I don't do kind of the optimal solution for my particular problem? And that wasn't as big of a concern. So I eventually got over my, what's the right way to do X, Y, and Z question was, but um, anyway, so for example, the best way, well, the best way, the way that a lot of people deal with startup code is that you create either an empty object or you attach a script to the camera because you've always got a camera um, or you can like say an an empty object will always be instantiated at startup and any object you attach a script to it and in your unity script you have or i mean it's it's c sharp but in this script you've got a start and an update method and so any code you want to run right at startup you put in start in that empty object and then anything you want to run every frame you you or before every frame more accurately you put in update so that was kind of one example of kind of a stumbling block that for me was like, I, I, re- I didn't want to just do whatever. And it turned out that sometimes doing whatever is just fine. <laughs> so that's a good lesson to take anywhere. It sounds like uh, I had a quick question, Jake, I wanted to kind of take a step back and ask you about, um, you mentioned mono develop. And I was, I was just curious about the tooling and the sort of debugging support. I know a lot of people who you, they don't like Xcode, they use something like app code instead, but it's like, oh, I can't do IB or the debugger isn't good. What's the tooling like for someone who's been using Xcode the entire time? Is it easy to use, easy to get into? How's things like debugging and things like that in, uh, in MonoDevelop for Unity? Yeah, it's not, I'm so used to Xcode, my impression is that MonoDevelop is not as good, but it might just be my bias. I, I'm not sure. There is, so far, everything I've needed to do, I've been able to do just fine. So when you debug, for example, you start the your game running. So there's all, there's a big play button right on the Unity editor, and Mono Develop is like a separate application that runs separate from Unity. And so you've got these two applications open: one for one that's your IDE, and one that's like the Unity editor. Huh. And so when you start, when you play a game in Unity, you hit play in the editor, and then in Mono Develop, there's like a debug window, and you say, "I want to debug this," and it will give you a list of of processes that are that are associated with Unity, and your game will be in there, and then you attach the debugger to, to that. And then in your code, you can set breakpoints and do a lot of the same things you do in Xcode and it will, you know, it will break on your code and you can inspect you know, variable values and things like that. Um, again, I'm so much more experienced with Xcode that there are like things where I'm like, I want to execute some, some code or I want to like deeply inspect this particular object. That's I, I've had a harder time in unity, but I don't know that it's because the tooling's not as good. It just might be that I haven't you know, figured out how to do that particular thing yet. Everything I've investigated, like I really need to know what this value is. I've been able to figure out. So the idea of the feast this week um, is to take, well, we are running a new unity tutorial every day, Monday through Friday. And the idea is to take you from being a complete beginner, beginner to unity to then making your first game come the end of the week so my question is more about what's a learning curve like because as you've already mentioned the um, unity ide is very different to what somebody may be familiar with coming from a an xcode slash ios background and i'm just wondering teaching somebody how to build a game in five days is quite ambitious but we're doing it in our traditional popular step-by-step approach so we're almost holding the reader's hand every step of the way and I'm just curious about what's going to happen beyond Friday when you know our tutorials stop and we've we've wet people's appetites you know what's the curve like what's the learning curve like beyond that for people to really get into unity 
So I've been doing a particular client project. I've been doing it for now for about three months and I'm just getting to the level where I feel like I know what I'm doing and it's all 2D. So I've been, I've been using the, the Unity UI engine, which came out in Unity 4.6. And so I'm getting pretty familiar now with the 2D tools and the UI engine and the animator. The animating tools in Unity are fantastic. They're really, really robust. And a lot of the things that I my instincts would tell me to do with actions in Sprite Kit or in Cocos 2D, you'd use actions. You can you can use and you should use um, the animator for. Now, there are limitations to that, but like the animator is way more robust than uh, anything anything equivalent that I've used for Cocos 2D or Sprite Kit. So I would say the, you definitely can learn how to put something together uh, in a week. But in terms of just having an idea and having a sense for like what's the best like again what's available to me what tools are available to me and what tools make the most sense that's going to take you know a little longer than a week to learn that for me i haven't been doing this full time it's probably i don't know one to two days a week for like say two to three months and so and i like say in the in the 2d in the scope of my 2d project i'm feeling pretty confident at this point so not, not to put anyone off then <laughs> no i mean it's like say i mean the number of hours i've put in is probably the equivalent of I don't know, maybe a month or six weeks full time. So it's not, you know, it's not that, it's not that much time. And I, and what I'm really talking about is when I think, okay, I need a button that when I click it, if the answer is wrong, then it puts up a little, like it, it plays a sound and it, and it shows a wrong graphic or if it's right, it highlights the button. And in the unity UI engine, I've got like a bunch of different options. You've got a toggle, you've got a button, you've got an image. You can just use, you cannot use the UI engine and just use images and swap sprites. So the question is like, there's like 10 ways to do this, to solve this problem, but what way makes the most sense? And what way am I going to spend the least time fighting with the editor and the tools that are built in? And so that's what I'm really talking about. Feeling comfortable is that I've seen now enough and I've made enough mistakes that when I have a new thing to solve, I'm like, okay, I feel like I know the way that's going to, you know, give me the least amount of grief. And that comes from, doing a bunch of the other ways first and seeing what how that goes wrong so the, the nice thing about a tutorial is it's going to give you kind of the optimal path for a particular game type but then once you just want to kind of riff and be creative you're going to need to know kind of the scope of what's there and the limitations and for me a lot of it came down to not understanding how much was in the editor and what i was controlling because when you put any any object into the editor it opens up a pane and that that object can will often have already several components. So a button, for example, a toggle button, for example, has a graphic that represents the background of the button. It has a text label and it has another graphic that represents the state, like a check mark that tells you if it's on or off. In Unity, a, a given game object can only have one image component. And so the check mark image is actually a child object instead of a component of the parent object, if that makes sense. And so you get into these levels of complexity where you're dealing with different things and you're adding components. You're not sure, do I want to add this as a child? Do I want to add this as a component on the primary object? And just with the experience, you kind of figure out, in my particular case, I'm going to want to do it as a child because I know down the road I'm going to need to maybe make it more transparent or less transparent. And I want to be able to kind of directly impact just this image and not the background image. So I want it as a child, things like that. Jake, I think one of the benefits that I've seen, I haven't done it too much, but of SpriteKit is that you can mix and match SpriteKit elements and UIKit elements. If you have um, 
I don't know, like an in-app purchase screen or something, you could use UIKit for that if you wanted to, rather than build it in SpriteKit. I don't think mm-hmm. that kind of thing was an option in Cocos 2D as much. But with Unity, is there that kind of option? And what kind of, basically, how much iOS knowledge could you use and leverage in your Unity apps? I haven't used any UIKit in in the project I've done. I don't know what the integration is with UIKit. I mean, I know that there's not any built-in integration, but there, there's the Unity Asset Store, which has all kinds of tools. Off the top of my head, I suspect that mixing UIKit with Unity is not going to be easy, um, and maybe not even desirable, because once you're in the Unity universe, all the tooling, all the code, everything's related to Unity. So, I mean, you can, you can build a plugin that wraps Objective-C code and either uses a framework or an API that's a native iOS API, but you can access it from your C-sharp code. You can do that in Unity, but a UI kit thing is, is, is another step up. I, I, I guess I can't answer that question, but it, it would, I, I get, I'm guessing the answer is mixing UI kit with, with Unity native stuff is going to either be not available or difficult to a point where it's probably not worth it. And Unity's UI, which came out in 4.6, is quite robust and quite good. So it's not native. It doesn't have the same look and feel. And so you'll know this is not native. But usually in the case of, of games, um, you don't need native-looking U- buttons and stuff. It's not as critical that it feel like you know a native iOS app. So... Mm-hmm. You mentioned the Asset Store quickly there, and I just wanted to ask you about that because I've heard many good things about it, but just the name of it, Asset Store, like I originally thought, oh, I can buy a sprite or I can buy a, a logo or something like that on there, some kind of image. But what exactly, what, what kind of things are actually available in the Asset Store? There are tons of things. So you can buy complete games. So people have built like starter kits uh, where you can just download and it's like a first-person shooter with, you know, models and you know, maps and everything, and it's all done. You can buy, people have 2D and 3D animated models for your games, all kinds of assets. But beyond just the different kinds of assets, you have all kinds of tool sets. So I did just mention there's a lot of tools in the store that are integrations with either Android or iOS native frameworks. Um, So that's available. The one thing that I have found lacking in Unity is, is an action system. So I, Sprite Kit's got this great uh, action system where you can say, okay, I want to play, play an audio file, and then I want to move my sprite from position, you know, position one to position two. And then during that move, I also want to scale it to this, you know, up to 1.2 scale. All, you can do all these things, and you can chain them together so that one, they run one right after another, or you can chain them so they run in parallel, and you can combine those two. So you can create really intricate chains of series of things, And if you think about kind of the opening animation for a lot of games where you kind of have UI elements sliding in and characters jumping around and doing things like this, a lot of that isn't interactable. And so it's all just kind of the scripted animation. And Unity has a a flash-like keyframe animator tool that's really, really robust. But as far as I found, they don't have any built-in code way to do these things. And so one of the common things in the asset store, there's like a ton of these are systems similar to the sprite kit action system where you can chain code chunks together and say, you know, run this and then wait, you know, 0.5 seconds and then scale it and then rotate it things like that. And that's nice because a lot of times you want to do a series of animations and then you want to execute code. You can do that. You can do that with unity's animation system. But so far I found that a bit awkward because 
it has to be connected to the right object in order to call a method on that object. And that's something that would be, there's a lot of times it would be easier to do it in code. And there are, there are tools uh, in the UniAssets store for that. Particle system, sets of particle systems that different people have made, shader, packages, I mean, all kinds of things. It's a huge store. That doesn't mean that anything you would want you can find, but there's so much there. Unity is built around the concept of a component-based architecture, which I believe is very similar to the Swift-based protocol programming we discussed earlier, and is also something that Apple brought to its gaming technologies via gameplay, gameplay kit in the summer. Can you just tell us a bit about what this means and how it works in Unity? If you want to add physics, for example, this is a common use case. If you have a bunch of enemies and a player and a bunch of you know platforms, and you want to add a physics engine so there's gravity and things land on platforms, um, you'd add you'd want to add a physics engine to your to your objects and you do that by adding a component to that object so you've got a player with a sprite maybe that sprites animated but now you need to add a physics engine to it in order to do that you just go into the editor you select your player object and then you add a physics component to it and there's i mean it's more complicated than that there's different levels of physics you can have collisions you can have collision callbacks you can have um things that don't actually they can physically move through each other but um, an, they execute a method when they do that and things like that so that's an example that's common where you're going to add you know a physics engine and traditionally what you do and what i have done in the past is you create you know a parent object in an inheritance architecture you'd create a parent object that had a, the physics engine code and logic built into it and then everything would inherit from that but the the whole and we mentioned this earlier the whole point of the component architecture is that with inheritance you have these huge parent objects and you're working, the more complicated your game is, the more the parent object's code, you're working against it and trying to write these if statements to work around certain basic behaviors. Well, with component architecture, you don't have to do that. You just kind of create the, the logic you want, and then everything that needs that logic can just add it as a component. So a lot of this stuff in Unity seems to be pre-configured and you know, readily available uh, through the UI, rather than having to drop down into code. So is there an element of having to kind of almost change your mindset at how you approach this kind of stuff when moving from something like SpriteKit and Xcode where almost everything is done exclusively in code and all objects are instantiated yourself and you would actually write a lot of this code manually to say for physics handle um, collisions and that kind of stuff to moving into something where it's a lot more drag and drop point and click? Yeah, definitely. So... An example of that is that when I first started working with buttons, I wanted them to highlight when I moused over them. This is actually a web project I'm working on. I wanted them to highlight when I moused over them, and there are callbacks in the code for on mouse over, on mouse or on mouse enter, on mouse exit. And so I set up swipe sprite swapping in those callbacks, and I used a script to manage those button objects. But it turns out all that's built into the editor, and I just didn't know it, or I saw it there, but I couldn't quite figure out how to configure it just the way I wanted it. And so I ended up just dropping down to a code level because that was where I was more comfortable and kind of doing a lot more manual work. And then after kind of struggling with that for you know a week or two, I realized everything I needed was there in the editor. I just needed to figure out how to configure it properly. And there are so many options. That is kind of one of the things about Unity is there's so much there that you might feel inclined to be like, well, I just, I don't want to use all this 
all these editor options because I don't know exactly how they all work and I don't know the implications, but I know if I drop into code, I have more control. And I think that's a legitimate choice, but it, it is going to slow you down in the long run, like knowing what the editor is in the editor and knowing how those options affect the behavior. And then if need be kind of writing code around that, if it doesn't, if the defaults don't give you what you want, uh, makes sense. But uh, as somebody who'd come from Sprite kit, my first instinct was to be like, well, I'm just going to drop down into code. Cause I know I can think of what code I'd write in Sprite kit to do exactly what I want to do. I had one quick question before we might have to wrap up here. And it was about cross-platform stuff. There's always the promise like of Java, of course, of write once, run anywhere. And I know Unity is a cross-platform framework, but have you looked into that? And how easy is it? How much work do you have to do to get your iOS Unity game up and running on Android or other platforms? I haven't been through the process. As I, as I said, the, the current project I'm working on is something just runs on the web. But from just kind of looking at the options, there's when you go to publish a game, a scene it gives you this list of like, how do you want to publish it? Do you want to publish it to WebGL or do you want to publish it to, you know, iOS, Android? Do you want to publish it to OS 10 or, or PC? And then the options that are, there's also all kinds of console options that I think are extra licensing fees, but it's all there. Now each platform does have eccentricity. So there's certain kinds of like movie assets that won't play on iOS because they need to call through to kind of the default default iOS code that plays movies. And so you can't just throw any movie file. It might work on the web, but it's not going to work on the iOS. So there, there are like the devil's in the details, right? So on the surface, it's fairly easy, but there are specific things where you do need to know what this particular file format is going to work on all the platforms I want to run it on. Or like one of the things we do on iOS is we have different, we have one X, two X and three X Sprite sizes. Uh, in Unity, that's you can do that, but it's a lot of work, and so it makes more sense to usually what people do is they just use a 3x size asset, and then the OpenGL engine will just scale it, um, which is not always as good. But usually in a 3D environment, it's less detectable than when you're just representing. You know, if you were to just take a UI image view and put a 1x sprite into a 2x view, you'd see that something was wrong. In the case of a 3D environment, a lot of times it's not as visible, so it's not as big of a problem. So there are lots of little eccentricities about the platforms that you need to understand. But in terms of like how difficult is, is it within the editor to publish to multiple platforms, it's quite easy. Okay, guys, we're going to have to wrap things up there for this episode. Thanks again for joining us, Greg. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on. If you have any feedback or comments on this episode, the new format or the series as a whole, then please do get in touch using podcast at raywendlake.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you all next time. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWendelk.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.